0: It's a joy to be here. Would you pray with me? Grant, Lord God, that my message and my speech might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power, that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we continue in the Gospel of Matthew as it unfolds in this lectionary that we use in the Anglican Church, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. If you have access to scripture, you might want to look at it. If not, you just have to trust me that I'll tell you what it really says. Give all your money to the rector. It, no, that's not what it says. I'm sorry. Wrong, wrong book. Um, it is always good when you come to church to bring the scriptures with you. Because you never know, though the liturgy is replete with verses and passages and themes from the Bible, that even as we come together and the spirit of the living God is with us, that he might not prompt in your heart a thought, a verse, an idea that would be helpful just to be able to flip open right there in that moment when the spirit's moving to read it, to see what it is that God has for you in particular, as well as for the whole body. So I always like to encourage folks, when you come, if you can, bring the scriptures. This morning we're going to look at this amazing encounter between Peter and Jesus and the other disciples we can imagine leaning in and listening on this remarkable teaching about forgiveness. Peter, at this point, Peter must have... Figured that he was really catching on to things. He'd heard teach Jesus teach about humility, the perseverance to save the lost, and the importance of good relationships among his followers. It's as if, as we get to this moment, it's like the kingdom must have been coming into focus for Peter, at least so he thought. As he wrestled with Jesus' ideas and and tried to conceptualize how to put him into practice, you can almost see the light go on for Peter when he says what he says to Jesus in our reading this morning. Peter, he had to have felt downright magnanimous when he says this, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, he asks. You see, the common interpretation of Scripture in Jesus' day was that the Scriptures required three, three times. Well, what had Peter done? Well, he doubled it and added one for good measure. That was being more than generous, surely, he thought. But the fact is, he may have thought he was bordering on the divine. And then Jesus startles Peter and all the disciples. He, he blew them away with a whole new level of forgiveness, heretofore unheard of in Judaism. Three times forgiving, and you keep the law and the prophets. Seven times, and you're beginning to catch on to Jesus' methodology. 77 times, and you've got it. But let me just put it this way. If seven times forgiving someone sounds like a stretch, 77 times sounds absurd. After all, who wants to be around anybody who needs that much forgiveness? <laughs> who indeed, who wants to be around me? Who wants to be around you? Jesus proceeded to challenge Jesus, Peter with the notion that all of us would do well to consider how much forgiveness we need before we become so stingy with how much forgiveness we're willing to offer anyone else. It's the common understanding in the scriptures of Jesus' day that the law of the prophets required a person to, re- to forgive someone three times. That comes out of the book of Amos and the beginning of that book, first 13 verses. But what, what good are three strikes if then you're out? I mean, for that matter, what good are seven? Some of us can use them up by the end of the day. Some of us can use them up by lunch. I can. Just ask Teresa. <laughs> but Jesus took forgiveness to, entirely, to an entirely different level. He taught Peter that we're not to forgive in a measured, calculating, scorecard-keeping way. Forgiveness is not about counting the times that we have to put up with another person offending us before we can discard them on the relationship junk pot. Nor are we to keep a record of offenses so that when the limit is finally reached, we can justifiably retaliate. You know, the old bumper sticker, don't get mad, just get even. Well, that seems to be the way our culture considers it. But you see, Jesus is talking about something very different. He's saying that as his followers, we are to always be ready to forgive. Jesus was saying that in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is a non-optional life principle. The attitude of forgiveness is to shape our lives. As followers of Jesus, we're to be known for it. Rather than noting another's fault and counting the remaining times before that person can be cut off and forgotten or judged and condemned, we're to acknowledge fault to see that happened, but with a keen reflection On our own faults and not just in that exchange but in our own lives how many times have we needed to be forgiven how many times have we needed it for the same offense that's just been done to us if if there's to ever be any score kept we need to keep tally of our own need for forgiveness Jesus is teaching Peter and us that the person who knows his own need for forgiveness and has also truly received it is always going to be the one most ready to forgive someone else. Now, to emphasize the point, Jesus tells this story. It's a story of some outrageous proportion. The man owed the king a great deal of money, more money than he could ever repay, 10,000 talents, That's up in the billions. But he begged the king for mercy because he owed the king so much, he begged for time to make things right, as if he could go somehow make that much money. It was an unpayable debt. Even if he lived as old as Methuselah, he would never be able to accumulate what it would take to pay back the debt. Maybe maybe in the story, the sheer immensity of the debt hadn't dawned on him. Or maybe he was in such denial denial about the problem that he really didn't see the nonsense of his request. Just be patient, I'll pay you back. But Whatever the case, as Jesus tells the story, the king had mercy on him. And he forgave him the entire amount owed. Now think about it. If you were that guy who just got that debt forgiven, you would think that this guy would have written a thank you note every day for the rest of his life, because that's how immense the debt was. But as Jesus unfolds the story, we see that just the opposite happened. No sooner had the debtor left the presence of the merciful King than he comes upon a fellow stu- a fellow servant who owed him less than a whole year's wages. It was actually a sum that somebody could pay back. But the full amount was immediately demanded by the previously pardoned debtor. And it was a demand that was immediate. The man couldn't pay. He didn't have it. And so he begged for mercy. He promised to pay it back if he could have some time. Nothing doing. Then things got violent. He was choked by the throat, and the family was threatened. The servant was thrown into a debtor's prison. After all, he had it coming. He owed the money, and he didn't have it, and it was being called for. And by all appearances, it was a payable sum. But do you hear the uncanny similarity between his plea and the first debtor's plea? Have mercy on me, give me time, and I'll repay. It's almost word for word. In other words, the first debtor should have heard himself in the cry of the second. He should have remembered the mercy that was shown to him. But he didn't. And as a result, judgment triumphed over mercy. When the king heard about all of this because servants saw it and ran back to the king to tell him, he was outraged. He summoned the first debtor, the merciless servant, man, into his presence, and he upbraided him for his lack of mercy. And then he withdrew his original offer and subjected him to swift and unequivocal justice. Now, as we hear the story, we have to be careful not to be so quick to judge this heartless debtor. The reason is because so often we can act just as he did. You know, it could be that he never really understood the magnitude of his own debt. And while that's kind of hard to imagine, it does seem our tendency sometimes when we've hurt someone else. We never really let it soak in sometimes How much we've hurt them, what level of pain we've caused, how severely we have offended a holy God who has given us his all. It does seem sometimes to be our tendency, and when we're confronted with a serious problem, the last thing we want to do is acknowledge it, and denial's comfort dwells in pretended ignorance. Ignorance to others, and to ourselves. The more probable thing in that story Jesus told that I think is what Jesus was really wanting to get across is that when that first debtor heard about the forgiveness of his debt, he heard about it, but he never really received it. He never received the full forgiveness that he was given. He never grasped it for what it really was. He never participated in what you could call the grace transaction. Somebody is needy and somebody is gracious. So something was needed and something was given. Someone needed forgiveness and some was, someone was being forgiving. But never someone gave forgiveness and someone received it with joy. That part never happened. Oh, the forgiveness was offered, all right. It just wasn't received. That part never happened. How do we know? Well, we know from the way he treated the other debtor. For there to be a true reception of forgiveness, there has to be an acknowledgment of our radical need for it. For there is the receiving, then there's the receiving of the mercy the acknowledgement that someone has canceled our debt, covered our debt with their love. Finally, there's a response. The man who owed much in Jesus' story acted as one who really received little forgiveness or none at all. Do you realize that's often how we operate? It can be true for us. When we're not aware of the magnitude of our debt to God, we can't ever really be prepared to receive the immensity of his forgiveness. If we don't understand that we, so full of sin, deserved a judgment of death, then we'll never understand the value of the blood of Christ that paid our price to forgive us our sin. As someone said to me years ago, you know what, Terrell, you're really kind of confused on the good news, bad news thing. You have to understand how bad the bad news is to understand how good the good news is. You have to realize you owed a debt you could never pay and someone stepped in your place and paid it for you, demanding nothing in return. When we're not aware of the magnitude of our debt to God, we can't be prepared to receive the immensity of his forgiveness. Likewise, when we we walk through life as people who think we really have never had to be forgiven much, we just walk through as those who've been forgiven little. We'll be as demanding and as, as exacting of others as our own consciences are of us. And how many of you know that our consciences can be ruthless captors that hold us hostage to the accusations of our personal failures and our own betrayals. We can try to ignore the debt or rationalize it down to a payable size. We can limit its effect and our own culpability by playing games in our minds with it. As with the man in Jesus' story, our own hearts convict us by our attitudes to other people who have offended us. If we have someone who we're struggling to forgive, it's simply a finger pointing back at us to say, then you are struggling with God to be forgiven. Our hearts do convict us by our attitudes toward other people who have offended us. When we forgive little, we're simply demonstrating that we have been forgiven little. It's not that we didn't have much that needed to be forgiven. It's just that we have only received a small amount because we were only willing to acknowledge a few piccadillos or small faults or bad reactions to other people's outrageous behavior. When we forgive little, we do demonstrate that we have been forgiven little. And we forg- when we forgive much, we reveal how much we know we have already been forgiven. Three times, seven times, 77 times, and many, many more. You know, at the end of the story, Jesus has some hard words to listen to where he says this when he tells the story to the disciples. And he talks about how the servant who did not have mercy was brought back before the king. And the king says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. The word in Greek is the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, when I hear them read as Father Jeremiah did with us today, it sends a bit of a chill. What are you saying, Lord? That when I don't forgive, I'm liable to some... Captivity, some torture. <clears throat> well, that's exactly what he was saying. But it's not that he would have some great jail in heaven so that the, un- the people who are unforgiving would be tortured in heaven. No, the torture's right here, right now. Do you realize what happens when we refuse to forgive? When we refuse to cover a debt owed us? You know, so much of the language of forgiveness is financial language. You owe me. I'm going to pay you back. When we don't forgive, do you know what so often we do in treatment to the people who need our forgiveness? We become emotional debt collectors. You owe me. And rather than forgiving, even if you were to come and say, please forgive me, rather than forgiving, I say, oh, no, no, it's okay when it isn't. And for the rest of our lives, until that debt is forgiven, we'll be exacting things from them, behaviors, modifications to the way they might treat us, judging them all along. And we might think that we're putting them in a bad place when all the while we've been placed in a torturous prison of being emotional debt collectors of the people we've refused to forgive. Forgiveness is costly. It costs the person who decides to cover the debt. It requires the humility of one to go to another to say, I'm so sorry, this was wrong, please forgive me. But in the asking of please forgive me, what we're asking is, will you please do three things? Will you have mercy on me? Will you release me of the responsibility to pay it back And will you pardon me? Each one's important, and each one our Heavenly Father does with us. Think of it this way. I read an article describing this one day, and it's stuck with me ever since. Say I borrow your car, and as I borrow your car, I accidentally wreck it. And then I go back to you and say, I cannot believe this has happened to your car. Your car ran into that tree. I'm so sorry that that happened. And if you decide to have mercy, then that means you decide no longer to be angry with me and no longer to let the relationship be hurt by it. That's mercy. That's not giving me what I do deserve. You see, that's the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve, and mercy... Excuse me, grace is receiving what you don't reserve, and mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. So the mercy is a decision to say, I'm not going to hold it against you. But it also is followed by release. To release me from the debt, then you have to say, I'm not going to ask you to pay for it. I will pay every repair for this car. And so he takes care of it himself, and ask for no money in return. That would be what you would do if you're releasing me. The cost doesn't disappear. You just say you'll handle it. And again, with me having wrecked your car, if you're to pardon me, then it means that you will never hold it against me from this day forward. In other words, you're even willing to lend me your car again that's forgiveness that's what god gives his children he gives us his mercy his release and his pardon our debt so great we could never repay it and he has forgiven it through the blood of his son How much do we forgive other people? (coughs) Jesus is saying this is a non-optional life principle in the kingdom of God. It is one of the ways that you'll show the light of Christ in a way that can truly be seen by the world around us. Jesus emphasized this point to Peter with this story of outrageous proportions. You see, it, it only sounds as if Peter is asking, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times. But Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart, just as he knows what's in ours. He knew that Peter was really asking, Lord, when it comes to forgiveness, do we still keep score? And in his reply, Jesus was saying, well, yes, you do, Peter, but only your own. And that way, you'll always be ready to forgive another person. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that you are indeed a forgiving God, that you love us so fully that you do give us both grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would be so aware of our own sinfulness that we would not stop there and feel horrible about ourselves for the rest of our days, but instead, in our grief and in repentance, we would turn to you, the lover of our souls, to hear your words of forgiveness and pardon and release. give us grace to receive it fully, holding back nothing, not thinking that anything we've done is unpardonable by you. And in receiving it, Lord, prepare us to be your people who demonstrate that same forgiveness to our own brothers and sisters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.